0: If you want to take your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, as so we continue our look at Ezra's prayer before the Lord. And we, we have read the entirety of the prayer all, already, in fact we've, we've read it now a couple of times, so this morning we'll be going through it just as we, we get to the various uh, pieces of the prayer as we are unpacking it, though if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, then I would encourage you to spend some time in Ezra 9 at, uh, at, at some point. And if you have not, beyond our Sunday morning, had an opportunity to read through, even in that spirit of prayer, uh, I would encourage you to read Ezra chapter 9. We'll, we'll be getting, getting to these verses in just a moment. There is a story... It's really better identified as an experiment, though often told as an illustration, that I'm assuming at least many in the room will recognize. It's a favorite among pastors, though it's not the only field in which this story is used. And and the story goes like this, experiments were conducted on frogs one frog was put into a pot of boiling water, at which point he jumped out. In another experiment, a frog was placed in lukewarm water and the temperature was changed, was increased over time, right? So incremental changes to the frog's bath and, and the, the, the statement then is made, what they claim scientists found is that the frog would acclimate a bit at a time to the water, even to the point where it became deadly. And the frog would just eventually die in what was the same boiling water that had you put him directly in the boiling water, he just would have jumped out of it. Are you all familiar with this? Have you heard this before? Again, it's a preacher favorite. It's used in a lot of other contexts. It's used in politics. This was a favorite story. You you all get ready for this, all right? It's a favorite story of Al Gore in warning about climate change. Of course, then it was called global warming, but I guess that's not happening, so now it's climate change, all right? So, nonetheless, but the argument went like this, you know, when you allow small compromises to occur, over time there can be really big consequences. You'll hear people talk about it in finance. You're allowing bad habits in spending or allowing yourself to have all of these accounts where maybe there's a little bit of a fee here or a little bit of a uh, of, a, of an overcharge fee there, and those little bits can add up until you really find yourself in a financial predicament it 's also of course used in a spiritual sense to, to talk about the the danger of allowing a little compromise here, a little compromise here, a little compromise here. And and eventually you find yourself in, in a dangerous situation experiencing the consequences of sin. It, it, it is a vivid and, and and really kind of graphic image. There's just one problem. It's not true. It's not true. I mean, not really. You put a frog in boiling water. Which you don't have to go do this. That's awful, all right? But if you do that, he's, he is going to jump out. He's going to be horribly injured, all right? That's what's going to happen. And you put a frog in lukewarm water and turn it up. Guess what he's going to do? When it gets too hot, he's going to jump out too. That's what's going to happen. Now, th- there, was a con- there was an experiment, by the way, conducted in the 19th century. They did this. And the reason why this story is perpetuated is because apparently there was one outlier frog out there that stuck it out and died. But the vast... And I don't know how Okay, some of you are worried about the story about... The, you're worried about the frogs. And I've lost you for the rest of the sermon. But most of the, the experiments they conducted found that no, no, eventually the thing will jump out. You say, all right, pastor, where are you going with this? I thought you were going to use it like, you know, worldliness and the dangers of worldliness and a little bit of compromise at a time. Well, sort of, except to say this. Here's where I think this becomes helpful, where even the truth of the experiment is more helpful than the way the story is told, because apparently frogs can be smarter than Christians. They get out before it's deadly. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen to believers. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen to churches. Uh, Unfortunately, what they allow to happen is, in fact, these little incremental changes, compromises... Um, w- w- in whatever form or fashion uh, uh, allowing maybe a little different idea about the gospel or the Bible or, or adopting values and principles because we don't want to be on the wrong side of history you know, or, or allow, allowing ourselves just to have these, these, these minor changes over time eventually that can lead to devastating consequences and we've seen it, right? I mean, if we were to take time and chronicle all of the failures we have seen from those in positions of real influence, what we might call Christian celebrities, we would see story after story. And what happens is we hear their story after they've hit the bottom. And we think, oh my, what a mighty fall. The truth is, as one old preacher said, we only saw the last step. They'd been taking little steps all along the way, little compromises, a bit at a time, until eventually the consequences were devastating. I mean, I could mention a name like Ravi Zacharias, right? Though, though here's another name perhaps not necessarily uh, among the names I would have quoted at a day favorably and still wouldn't nonetheless the most recent of these scandals to break Brian Houston who used to pastor Hillsong Church boasting 150,000 members worldwide he has now been again it seems like a mighty fall but it's really not most of the time it's a gradual slide a bit at a time I think as we turn once again to Ezra chapter 9 and we we find ourselves dealing with what Ezra has encountered in Jerusalem as a second wave of exiles have returned this is some this is decades, 60, 70 maybe even 80 years since the stories of the first group of exiles to leave Persia and rebuild the temple. And in those intervening years, something's gone horribly wrong. It's not like they woke up one morning and all of a sudden decided to rebel against God's commands. And in full disclosure, I'll tell you, we don't really know what all they may have done in between the time of rebuilding the temple and when Ezra shows up on the scene. But I can tell you, as somebody who's been in the ministry for some amount of time, but you don't need a pastor even to tell you this. You know the stories, maybe even in your own life at times. Something happened along the way. Little violations that they acclimated to ways in which they decided that this command didn't apply here in this way, or, you know, maybe it's not a big deal if we just skip doing this for a little amount of time. Now they find themselves in a place where, that their forefathers were. The very thing that sent them into exile nearly a century earlier. Or more. It's coming back up again. And so Ezra chapter 9, really chapters 9 and 10, tells the story of how Ezra confronts what's going on in Jerusalem and how, how to deal with it. How, how do they manage these violations of God's commands? specifically the intermarrying with pagan groups around them? There'll be more on that in just a moment. We've already talked about it, but we'll see it again. And so so these chap these chapters tell us so here's here's what Ezra does in response to finding out about these things and really gives us i think a great illustration of what it looks like to respond to sin in the camp what 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 how how should we Respond whether it's in our lives, whether it's in the church, how should we be mindful then of the dangers of worldliness? How, how should we be mindful of the incremental ways in which the world can attach itself and we can attach ourselves to it? What, what should be then our response? Few threats are as dangerous as this to the life of the church, and so to be a faithful people of God, we need to be a holy people of God. So how do we respond? Well, looking at Ezra 9 and 10... There's, there's going to be four reactions. Number one, we've already looked at conviction, contrition. So we, we recognize what we have done for what it is and we experience the, the guilt and the shame. Listen, I, I know those are hard words, right, in our culture. Our culture will tell you those are bad words. They would probably rate a movie a, a harsher rating if it involved too much guilt and shame because, because they trigger people, right? Right? We don't want anybody to feel guilty. We're just, we'll give them coloring books and hopefully they'll feel better. Right? That's what we do. But guilt and shame are good. Godly guilt, godly shame are good things. Because that is, that is the first step in addressing the sin and getting right with God. Because what is the end game here? It is making sure we are in fellowship with our God, because I don't know how you view life, but I would contend that the best way to live life is in fellowship with the one who created it. It seems like everything else is just a problem. So, contrition. Number two, this is what we started looking at last week, and the bulk of chapter nine then is a prayer of confession. Ezra's confession for the circumstances as they are. Now going into a deeper outline. Now you've got blanks to fill in. You didn't have this last week. But again, beginning in verse 6, going to the end of the chapter, Ezra lays out a beautiful confession, deep, profound, hard. Uh, I mean, it's all the above. And, and lays out then for us an illustration. What does it look like to express genuine contrition? It comes out in confession. So what does confession look like? How can we be certain that confession is genuine? We cannot manage worldliness in our lives, the presence of sin, if it does not involve genuine confession. So, number one, letter A, we are responsible for our sin. The first, the, the first feature of a true confession: confess that we are responsible. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not a quirk of my personality. It's not because of my upbringing. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other features that can encourage us to sin in a variety of ways, but at the end of the day, sin is my fault. We'll never get any further if we don't admit it. This is what Ezra does in this prayer. Again, we looked at it last week, but we'll begin reading here. Beginning in verse 6, And I said, O oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to humiliation, as it is this day. As we noted last week, it's interesting, Ezra takes responsibility for sins he's not committed. He's not intermarried, but that's not what he's getting at here. He's saying this has been a habit, this has been a pattern, this is th- there's historical data that backs up the fact this is what we have been doing, and we're doing it again, and past generations have experienced God's Judgment as a result. So we're responsible for it. Number two, <clears throat> we also acknowledge that we are recipients of God's grace. Recipients of God's grace. I think an important feature of a genuine confession is to is to acknowledge the grace that God has given to us in the past. It's not only saying, I have sinned and this has been something, it's not the first time I've sinned. I think this part is also recognizing, I I need God's grace and it's not the first time I've needed God's grace. Again, I I find this to be such a helpful example because it so honestly deals with the circumstances as they are. Notice what he says in verse 8. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in His holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. That, that, that's, that, that, is, a, that is a beautifully expressed statement. Now for a little while, God, you have given us grace, and I love that language. New King James puts it like this, you've given us a peg in your holy place. That can also be translated as a a foothold. It's a stake in the ground. It's a way of saying, God, you have now refashioned us as your people and refastened us into your promised land. But you'll notice how Ezra recognizes, the language here is interesting because Ezra recognizes they've been shown grace, but but he also recognizes they're in a position where they might be ready to experience God's judgment again because it's just a foothold. They've got a peg in the holy place of God, but it's just a peg. In other words, if circumstances go on as they are, If history tells us something and the old adage that history repeats itself, if, if we have repeated our sin in the face of God's overwhelming grace, if we continue to repeat that sin, why would we not expect then God to repeat his chastisement? So that's what he's praying. God, you have shown us grace. What an important admission that we recognize we have been recipients of the grace of God. So so he even goes on to identify what that is. Verse 9, for we were slaves. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. God has done this profound and amazing work. He's rescued us. By the way, that language to describe them here, to say we were slaves and God did not forsake us in our bondage, it's important to note that while they were in Persia, the Jews weren't living under the same conditions they were living under in Egypt. However, they were not necessarily free men and women. They, they were occupying a position of second-class citizenship, and many of them were in servant-like positions, and the bottom line is, they couldn't leave of their own accord. This was not a coming and going kind of thing. They could only leave if the king of Persia said, because these men and women are in Persia as a result of a conquering kingdom. So in the eyes of Persia, they were property. They belong to them and in in this place. I think it's interesting, though. Ezra is intentionally drawing on imagery of Egypt because Ezra is very much a second Moses, bringing his people out of captivity and to the promised land and then reestablishing them in covenant faithfulness. That's why I've said Ezra is such a great bookend to the book of Exodus. These are bookends to the story of Israel in the Old Testament. It is the last set of narrative, by the way, Ezra and Nehemiah. This is the end of the book. This is the end of the Old Testament history. And so he's, he's definitely giving us an allusion here to that. And this is what God has done. God has intervened to give great and profound grace. I think we would do well to remember this. As we deal with worldliness and sin that may be in our lives or in the church, we would do well to remember first. Here's what this does. This reminds us this is not, as the saying goes, our first rodeo. If you find yourself in a place where you, under, you are under conviction of sin, as a believer, this is not the first time. It's not the first time. If you have engaged in confession of sin before, it is, it is not the first time. No, this is something that's happened before. In fact, there may even be some of you, I know this uncomfortable for Sunday morning, because you're going to think, As, does God give him visions of me? All right, no, he doesn't, all right? But, but, I, but I know people because I'm one of them, all right? And that there are some you find yourself Struggling with sin that at times you feel like you can't get free from. That's often the struggle of sanctification. And so to confess in our our prayer that we are recipients of God's grace, it, it, it owns our sin to a deeper level. It says this is not the first time we've done this and it's not the first time I've had to come to God for grace. It's not the first time he's had to forgive me. It's not the first time I've had to avail myself of the resources God's given to me to get back into fellowship with him. It's not my first time. And so that's what that recognizes, to to confess our need for God's grace. We are not immune to these things. But there's something else here and this is good news. This reminds us that God is a God of manifold grace. It's a great old word. What that just means is grace upon grace. Myriad, various, numerous times of grace. I've not just needed God's grace once or twice or a dozen times. I can't even put a number on it and neither can you. And tomorrow will be the same. But a passage like this reminds us this is how God reacts to His people. This is what God does for His people. God is a giver of grace. And that's good news. Of course, we would be reminded that grace comes to us not as a result of our effort or our work. It is is God's act to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, right? Unmerited grace. Favor, and what does God then expect from us? Well, that we take sin seriously, we acknowledge our responsibility, and that we acknowledge, yes, we have done these things. We have sinned. You can see here is what grace has done. Grace has changed our position. Right now, we are sons and daughters of the King, and grace also is a reminder to us that whatever sin in which we have engaged, we didn't have to. It's a choice. But God's grace is good. So as we confess, we remember this. All right, number three. The third feature that we acknowledge in our confession is that we are violators of God's word. Now, you might say at this point, well, pastor, you've already said responsible for sin. Uh, What is the difference then between being responsible for sin, confessing we're responsible for sin, and then saying we are violators of God's word? There's a really important distinction. It may be a fine line, but I think it's an important one. To add this element to it is a way of saying, God, I have sinned, I'm responsible for my sin, and I knew better. I knew better. Because God's Word has stated it. I knew I shouldn't have done those things. I knew I shouldn't have said that, acted like that. I I, I, I knew the values and principles that should be governing my life, but they weren't. I knew it. To say, God, you have written this down in your word, that word is accessible to me, and I know that my sin is a violation of it. Notice how Ezra does this, beginning in verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants the prophets saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands and their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now therefore do not give your daughters as wives for their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments? and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations, would you not be angry with us until you had consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? So Ezra very clearly then indicates, God, not only have we sinned, but we have sinned looking square into the face of your commands. You've given us your commands, you've given us your word, and then you gave us prophets to make sure we understood how that word should be applied. There's no wiggle room here. There's no excuse. There's no getting out of this. No, no, your expectations were very clearly laid down, and God, we have violated Now, I do want to point out something here because this continues to flesh out an issue that comes in this passage. And and that is the concerns over God's uh, forbidding the Jews from marrying among the people groups around them. And as we've said all along, God's issue here is not an issue of race or ethnicity. That this is not the concern. Did, did you notice what it said here? How did it describe their sin? And I think this is really important because this helps us identify how God views rebellion in this world. The land which you are entering, verse 11 says, it is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the land with their abominations which have filled it from one end to the other with their impurity. See, understand something, church. When, 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 the, when the text lays out names like Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Amorites, Ammonites, Jebusites. I don't, I don't think that's it. I think I've run out of ites, all right? But I think maybe that's most of it. When it's laying out these people groups, understand he's not talking about a group of people, about different groups that are basically good people. Trying real hard and and you know, kind of salt of the earth kind of people. No, these people are engaged in abominations. Do you know what else the Bible says about abominations? It says God hates them. Sorry, moms and dads and kids that are present. I know hate is a strong word, but God does use it a few times. It's rare, but he does use it. One of the ways he uses it is to describe these. Abominations. And it's from one end to the other. It's pervasive. It's, it's, it's all throughout the society. Here's what he's warning us about. Worldliness is not a matter of degrees of distinction. It's mutually exclusive with being the people of God. Any bit of it will corrupt A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of corrupting influence is deadly and destructive. And we need to appreciate this because here's what gets bandied about in our culture these days. Well, you know, all these other... And and understand, what we're talking about, again, is not the issue of race or ethnicity. It's about faith. The concern is they have a thoroughly pagan worldview that expresses itself in thoroughly pagan, ungodly, abominable things. So the issue is not an issue of race, it's an issue of faith. And what we need to appreciate, because we live in a world, we live in an American, the American religion of the day is, just believe what you want to believe. Be a fine person, and we're all trying to get up the same mountain, we're just using different paths to get there. Baloney. It's not true do you really think God would say of the Canaanites the Hittites the Perizzites the Ammonites the Amorites oh they're they're fine people they're all we're all trying to get up on the same mountain we're just using a different pad to get up there no that's not how God would describe them God would say they're not only not on the same planet they're not in the same universe there is only one way up the mountain in fellowship with God and it's laid out in his word it's laid out in his word we need to appreciate this because what God's warning of here if they intermarry what's going to happen is they're going to bring them down. And you can, you can read this for yourself but read the entire history of God's people in the Old Testament. Guess what you'll never find? You'll never find a case where God's people intermarried into the Canaanites or the Amorites or the Ammonites or whoever they are where, God, where God's people intermarried into them and they became Jewish. It never happened. There's not one example of the people marrying into these other cultures and groups and faith groups, there's not one example then where that faith group was changed to being God-worshippers. Now, I know there's some examples of individuals. Ruth converts to Judaism. That would be perhaps one of the most famous. But you never find it as a group where this happens. But you find every single time that they intermarry... They adopt the pagan practices of the people. Listen, this is a real danger, church. And this is not necessarily directly in line with the issue of worldliness, but I think as as a whole for the church, I think we would do well to remember this. Any attempt to shallow out the gospel, any attempt to fiddle with the gospel, any attempt to make the gospel a softer sell in order to reach the world will only end up perverting the gospel. It will not save the lost person. can't afford to do this it is destructive and dangerous and to be faithful we have to recognize when God says it in his word then we agree with it we commit ourselves to it part of this process of confession is to say yeah I, I knew what I did it didn't sneak up on me it's kind of like even in our own legal system so go commit a crime, go before a judge and say, judge, I didn't know it was a crime. There's, there's even a Latin phrase for it, right? Ignorance of the law. Is not an excuse. Now, there are some outliers, by the way. There are some people who've tried to say I was ignorant of a law. There's a few outliers actually out there, but by and large... Now, a judge may show some kind of mercy if it's your first offense or you seem genuine or contrite or whatever the case, but just because you don't know it was a law doesn't mean you're not going to pay the consequences for violating it. How much more is that true? That as God's people, He's given us a book... And that book very clearly contains what he expects from his people. We cannot. We have no room then to go before God and say, "God, I got to be honest. That one snuck up on me. I didn't realize that was a sin." It was, it was my brother talked me into it. Well, God, it was his coworker. You don't, under, God, you don't understand. I'm wired this way. God, you you, you don't you don't get it. I'm not responsible for this sin because, well, I don't read my Bible, so I just didn't know. doesn't work. Now, part of our confession is saying we have violated the Word of God, and so we have to be faithful then to it. Let me give you one more, and this is just a, a simple conclusion here, and that is that we are in need of God's mercy. We are in need of God's mercy, you notice that language that we've already read there, how, how he begins to wrap up this prayer. After he says, so here's what has happened. Your, your sons and daughters have given themselves to marriage with the pagan uh, people. And, and then verse 13, that was a great statement where he says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Ezra is saying that the exile out, out of Israel, that the Assyrians coming in and then the Babylonians coming in, in other words, this, these two acts that, that decimated the nation, Ezra is saying, we deserved worse. No, you, even in that, Ezra is saying God was Merciful and then he goes on to say now he begins to speculate of a sort so so now now that we've done this you've given us a, del- a deliverance we don't deserve we've again broken the commandments would you not now be angry with us until you consumed so there'd be no remnant left in other words is this it Ezra's concern is, God, now we've done it so much. We've been engaged in this with such intensity now, and it's been going on, and it's it's historical. We've been doing this for generations, and we've been judged on more than one occasion for this. And so now, God, is your response going to be total annihilation? Is that what's coming? Now, I don't think Ezra really believes that's what's coming. I think Ezra knows, given what he knows about who God is and the promises God has made, but that's not what's coming, but he is speculating, this is what we deserve. And so verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Again, the word mercy is not used, but that is what he's talking about, right? You have judged us, Less than our iniquities deserved. So this prayer of confession ends then with this recognition that we need God's mercy. Now, some may be saying, well, Pastor, you've already talked about God's grace. That we're recipients of God's grace? Aren't these really just kind of the same ideas? Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, there obviously is a lot of connection here. And even language of God's love or God's patience, you know, all these kind of have points of connection with one another. But here's how it's often been described. And I think this is this is an apt description of it, though, though don't, don't take this as like the fullness of a definition of these ideas. But there is a distinction between grace and mercy. God in his grace gives us something we don't deserve. God in his mercy withholds what we do, deserve. I think it's a pretty good way to think of it. Because this this is what Ezra is saying. God, God, you you withheld. You withheld the fullness of your wrath. We deserved it. You withheld it. You did not bring the fullness of the consequences of our sin to bear upon us. And so what I think Ezra is doing here is he's now throwing himself at the mercy of the court. Right? So God, here we are before you, O judge... We can't stand before you. No one of their own accord can stand before you. And that's what I think makes this prayer so profound. That that here here we have Ezra so very clearly understanding the circumstances as they are. If we're going to deal with worldliness among us, this is how we have to do it. We need to be contrite, but we also need to confess. And if we want that confession to be genuine, a genuine confession will be these things, owning sin acknowledging God's goodness and grace, recognizing we have violated the Word of God, there's a standard out there against which we can can evaluate our lives and that we are then in ongoing need of God's mercy. Now, there are then two groups that I would appeal to. I mean, first and foremost, and this has largely been the focus, is to believers. As I said last week, there's good news here to the believers in Jesus Christ that salvation is forever forever. You you are in relationship with God. You are a son or daughter of God, a child of the King. That work has been accomplished in Christ. You have been made new. That's good news. However, you can break fellowship with Him. And this process is about restoring fellowship with the Lord. And this is how it is. This is how it begins. This is how it works. If you find yourself here this morning in this kind of sin, we're gonna be singing once again about the glory of the gospel of God, about the goodness of our Savior's work for us. Where it begins is taking advantage then of what God has promised you in Christ. Confess your sin. Own it. Receive the grace of God. Receive his mercy. Commit yourself to his word and you can walk in faithfulness. Of course, to those who are not believers, I would implore you to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you now are in a position where before God you will be eternally judged. But you can be saved. Confess that you are a sinner unable to save yourself. That Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that that by faith you trust in Christ's sufficient sacrifice and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And avail yourself then of that promise of the gospel. And you can be saved today. How will you respond to the goodness of God's promises to us? How will you respond to being the people of God? Will you find yourself once again taking advantage of the goodness of the gospel and a Savior who's paid it all? We'll sing about Jesus paying it all. And so I would encourage you to come under this word that you might enjoy the freedom that it gives. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we'll continue to sing together. Father God, we thank you for the gathering of your church. We thank you for your people gathered to worship, to worship in song, to worship in prayer, to worship in your word and again we turn to song and as we do so we pray that you by your spirit would bring that word to bear on our lives revealing our sin may we deal with it openly, honestly recognizing it in light of your word that we then might receive your grace and mercy to be restored and to fellowship with you to walk in faith and obedience before you that you are blessed by your people that you are honored by your people and that we are a faithful witness of Christ to a world that desperately needs the gospel. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen.